Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kellen McFall from Newman University, and I'm a host on the show. And today I'm thrilled to have Elizabeth Anthony on the podcast. Betsy is the director of the Visiting Scholar Program at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and she's the author of the wonderful new book, The Compromise of Return, Viennese Jews After the Holocaust. And I thought I'd start just by remembering that that I lived in Vienna. Uh, I was a Fulbright scholar there in 1994 and 1995, working on my dissertation. Um, And that happened to be a year in which Austrians were wrestling with their role in World War II. And so I would pass newsstands on my way to the archives or uh, uh, the grocery store or wherever, and I would see headlines uh, on Profil or other magazines uh, about stories about the war and, and more importantly, stories about the war's place in the Austrian past. And these articles were pretty new in the 1990s. And, and that reflects the effort Austrian politicians and leaders put into crafting a narrative of Austria as Germany's first victim. And that narrative uh, and the context that enabled it and perpetuated it um, played a prominent role shaping the lives of Jews who returned to Vienna in the years after the war. And the book we're going to talk about today with Betsy uh, is is an examination of of those Jews and the lives they led as they came back to their hometown or homeland. We'll talk about that as we go along. Uh, An examination of who returned and and, and why they returned and, and the world they returned to and and how these returnees tried to carve out a space for themselves in that world. It's it's, it's a fascinating book. Uh, I'm thrilled to talk about it with Betsy. So Betsy, welcome, and thanks for joining us on New Books and Genocide Studies. Thank you so much, and thank you for inviting me um, to be here today. So we always start the same way, Betsy. So um, maybe you could take a a little time and, and introduce yourself to the audience. Tell us about yourself and how you became interested in studying the Holocaust and, um, and, uh, how you got into the subject. Right. Thank you. Well, first, before I get started, I do need to say that the views expressed both in the book and here today on this podcast are my own and do not necessarily represent the views of United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. And uh, that is where I do work as a historian. I have a PhD in history from Clark University. And as you mentioned, Kelly, I'm now the director of visiting scholar programs at the Mandel Center for Advanced Holocaust Studies. I have a long history with the museum, however, one that predates this, this term of employment. I originally trained as a social worker, and I worked at the museum in the Office of Survivor Affairs in the 90s, early 2000s. That office is the museum's sort of liaison office to 
the survivor community, mainly in the United States, but internationally to some extent. And um, there I worked with survivors and their families, and um, specifically with the survivors who volunteered at the museum. And that job, as you can imagine, really was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get to know many survivors really well and to create some really meaningful relationships with them. And certainly that influenced my work and focus on survivors, for sure. In 2004, so I worked with the survivors in Washington from 98 to 2004. And in 2004 is when I actually moved to Vienna. And while there, I became involved a bit with the Jewish community. I was working as a social worker um, with refugees, um, but also really learning German and kind of naturally getting in a little bit with the Jewish community. A friend of mine is a psychologist at the Jewish nursing home in Vienna and the Maimonides Centrum. And she suggested that I come practice my German at the, at the nursing home, um, you know, volunteer with smart projects or singing, singing hours or things like that. Mm-hmm. And so I, did, so I decided to do that. On the very first visit, of course, as soon as they heard my accent, <laughs> all they wanted to do was speak English with me. And of course, you can imagine elderly Viennese Jews who had returned uh, to Vienna, obviously, to live after the war. Most of these people had spent the war in English-speaking places, in the UK, in the United States, in then Palestine. They all wanted to speak English. I never got to practice my German. And it turned into a weekly um, English Stammtisch that we held out there. And in that way, I started getting to know survivors in Vienna. And I think it was, it was really a moment of, I felt very naive at that moment when I looked around and realized, wow, there are a lot of, there are actually a lot of elderly Viennese Jews. What are they doing here? Why are they here? Why would they come back and choose to live here? And I felt extremely naive because of course, all my work prior to moving to Vienna had been with survivors and their families in the U.S. They had emigrated. They didn't go home. You know, they, or if they went home, they, they certainly didn't stay there. They, they made new homes. And I know, I mean, I'd worked at the Holocaust Museum for years. I, I knew intellectually that some Jews had gone back, that there was a Jewish community in Germany and Austria. I knew that, but I don't think I realized it really until I was there and meeting these elderly survivors and so I started having these questions about why, you know, why were they there? Why did they come back? And it really clicked for me as a research question a little bit later when I was visiting in the United States and I met with a group of the survivors in Washington that I worked with. And I mentioned, among other things, that I'd been volunteering at the Maimonides Centrum. And they were shocked, too. <laughs> they... I gained a really a new perspective on it when I talked with them because I could see, first of all, that they were surprised and that they had some really mixed feelings about the ideas of survivor, the idea of survivors having returned to and living in Vienna. And, you know, they must have also intellectually, on an intellectual level, known that 
some had gone back to Germany and Austria. But um, again, they were sort of realizing it at the moment of the conversation. And I left thinking, hmm, you know, there might be something here. And a few years later, started my formal studies. And this has been my topic ever since. And you're now director of the Visiting Scholar Program. Maybe you can say for the listeners just a little bit about what that is and what it does. Sure. Yeah, I returned to the museum in 2013, first as a the staff scholar working with a specific digital archive, the International mm-hmm. Tracing Service Digital Archive. And then about two years ago, I took the role of director of Visiting Scholar Programs, which essentially means I run the annual fellowship program at the museum. We host sometimes as many as 30 fellows annually who come for as many as eight months in residence, as few as two and as many as eight months, and to do research in our collections and to do work on site at the museum. And if anyone is interested, please see our website or contact me. The deadline for next year's um, competition will be in November. So let's talk about the book uh, and let's start out with maybe a little bit of background. Um, I know that, that many of our listeners may not be familiar with the history of Jews uh, and, and of anti-Semitism in, in, in Austria and, and before that in the Habsburg monarchy. So so what, what are the key things to know about the history of Jews in Vienna in the years before 1938? Well, Jews had lived in Austria for centuries. Um, settlement restrictions were lifted after the revolutions of 1848 and Jews from all over the empire started to migrate to Vienna. They received full emancipation in 1867, which is somewhat early in Europe. Um, and with that came much more such emigration migration to Vienna. With all of this, um, there was, of course, anti-Semitism nonetheless. It's not that these restrictions were lifted and then suddenly everyone was getting along. And as nationalism was a growing issue across Habsburg lands as well, Jews continued to be blamed for things like the um, stock market crash in 1873. And towards the end of the 19th century, you started to see anti-Semitism as a an official part of political platforms. Despite the anti-Semitism that was there, both on this more official level and, and in society, Jews in Vienna really found their way to maneuver and integrated pretty quickly in a relatively short period of time um, and fairly thoroughly into society, and many enjoyed a lot of success. Some converted to Catholicism, though maybe not as many as commonly sort of assumed or understood. But in any case, there was a great deal of assimilation and acculturation in a relatively short time. What I think is important is that they were thoroughly Viennese. Mm. um, And this sensibility and identification and and also this, this way of understanding how to navigate a Vienna that was pretty permeated with anti-Semitism also informed them with, you know, after the war with their thoughts of return to maybe give them the confidence to, to think or to know that they could, they could handle an anti-Semitic um, 
society that they were used to. There's, there's really, there's always been sort of an ambiguity to Austrian identity. One could feel both Austrian and German and still be a loyal monarchist during the Habsburg times, of course. Others felt the same way, both Austrian and German, but favored Anschluss. And in a similar way, Jews could be 100% Viennese, but also feel Austrian and German and Jewish at the same time. The Jews supported and fought in World War I as loyal Austrians. Tens of thousands of Jewish refugees then fled during World War I, fled the Russians to Vienna, where the Jewish community and the Austrian state supported them. And this influx of Eastern Jews, of course, then brought more anti-Semitism, unfortunately. The end, as well as with the end of World War I, the dissolution of the Habsburg Empire, rise of nationalism in new nation states and meant that Jews and other minorities would suffer. And there was this common belief that Jews couldn't have a national loyalty. And, you know, at this time, so this is, we're talking the interwar period, Jews in Austria hoped they would be able to continue to identify as both Austrians and as Jews. But it was at this point that they weren't able to feel or really to be accepted as German. And most Austrian Jews grieved the end of the monarchy for many reasons. So by 1934, the Jewish population of Vienna totaled more than 175,000. And at the time of the Anschluss in 1938, the formal Jewish community membership was about 185,000. Mm. I don't, I don't know. I don't want to go into a full Austrian history lesson here. Um, but, but of course, it, in this time leading up to the Nazis in Austria, there was an Austro-fascist dictatorship mm -hmm. and um, a lot of turmoil and fighting. This was a Catholic form of fascism, sort of more in the model of the Italians. And um, after, during this time, the Nazi party was illegal. And then after this short and bloody civil war in 1934, ultimately the social Democrats were made illegal too. Um, but it was the Austro-fascists that basically kept the Nazis at bay, at least for a while. Um, Schuschnigg, who was in power at the time of the Anschluss, was unsuccessful. He resigned on March 11th, and then on March 12th, 1938, the Anschluss happened. One thing that I do think is really is interesting to point out is that just before the Anschluss, in these, you know, Schuschnigg's last-minute attempts to try to stave this off, he tried to do a, a referendum on Austrian independence. And as a result, when this, this vote was coming to be, there were political slogans written all over the streets and as graffiti on the pavement, on the streets. And a few days later, after the Anschluss, after the Nazis came, one of the forms of humiliation that the Nazis and Viennese took towards Jewish Viennese was to force them to scrub this graffiti off of the streets. And so this is what we see. We see these emblematic photos of Viennese Jews forced to scrub the streets. And of course, scrubbing a, the street with a, or a sidewalk with a toothbrush is humiliation in and of itself. But there's even more to it. And that it was this act of forcing them to 
erase the graffiti that um, represented the opposition to the Nazis. So that's, that's, I was going to say, that's exactly the photographs that stick out in my head. That's exactly the photographs that get used, at least in the classrooms I've been in, to illustrate um, the, 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 the arrival of official anti-Semitism in, 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 in Vienna with the Nazis. So, so how many then of those Jews, how many left, uh, vol I, voluntarily is not the right word, how many escaped, I guess, Austria? Um, and where did they go? And um, what was that experience like? Well, um, at the time of the Anschluss, now I'm about to use some numbers. So I just said <laughs> that the <laughs> formal Jewish community membership at the time of the Anschluss was 185,000. Now what I'm going to say is that at the time of the Anschluss, there were about 201,000 people um, Jews or of Jewish descent that, you know, by Nazi definition, by Nuremberg's definition, were to be persecuted or could be persecuted by the Nazis. And so of the 201,000 Jews, um, about two-thirds uh, two of them were able to escape. Not all to safety, but most. And something like 65,000 were murdered by the Nazis. After the Anschluss, the Nazis reorganized the Jewish community to do, to do its dirty work, to do their dirty work, basically. Mm -hmm. they, the program was forced emigration before it was um, genocide, really. It was mm -hmm. to get the Jews out of Austria and they forced the Jewish community to be the machinery that would exploit and rob Austrian Jews before forcing them out. And this they did through their very um, hard work and diligent efforts. They were able to, as I said, get about two thirds out, but um, not before they were impoverished and, and just shoved off without most of their possessions. They fled all over the world from Shanghai to the UK, North America, Palestine, Latin American countries. Um, and most of them, most of them fled to places where they were safe. Uh, Vienna was, you know, this place where Adolf Eichmann first really made his name, where he and his men put mm -hmm. the Jewish community to work to enact a forced immigration program. And this became a model that was to be used throughout Greater Germany and this practice of commandeering Jewish community leadership to carry out, as I said, the regime's dirty work evolved into the establishment of Judenräte, the Jewish councils that um, were in the ghettos in the East, ultimately. So, um, I want to separate and kind of talk about uh, your book, uh, and this is mostly for the listeners, not for you, but in, in thematic, by dividing things into themes. But I also want to recognize as we do so that that's an intellectual exercise and that in reality, all of this is interwoven together. So, um, but, but for clarity, um, maybe we can start with the, the Austria to which these Jews returned, uh, an Austria that's trying to figure out how to put the war behind it or behind them. Um, 
and I and, and I mentioned in, in this introduction this narrative of the first victim. So so maybe you could say a little bit about how the government of Austria tries to craft a narrative about the war that will recast Austrian participation and, and make it possible for the Allies to see it as a victim. Yeah, well, this so-called victim myth started to form even before the end of the war. Um, this this idea of the victim myth um, is that, you know, as you said, Austria was the first victim of the Nazis, that the Anschluss was an aggressive military invasion, and then Austria was occupied by the Nazis. This is the, the idea. Um, the language of the Moscow Declaration, which was... Mm-hmm. Uh, issued by the Allies in 1943, and it included, included their plans for Europe after they'd won the war. The piece that referred to Austria referred to it specifically as the first free country to fall to Hitlerite aggression and said that the Allies sought to, quote, liberate Austria. And so it was put into, you know, text black and white by, by the allies. And this is something that these early post-war politicians took hold of and ran with in the aftermath of the war. And of course, the allies also permitted it to happen. But as I said before, also because of the Moscow Declaration, but also because of Austrian groups and parties, political parties in exile, this myth was developing you know, already in the early 40s. And for example, so the um, Austrian Communist Party in exile told its members that were living in exile in the UK um, that Austria and Austrians awaited their return, that they needed to go back, reclaim their Austria, help rebuild an autonomous democratic Austria. And that I mean, essentially the idea that the Germans were gone, so the Nazis were gone, and they could go back to rebuild an autonomous democratic state. They weren't completely naive. They, they knew that there would be some re-education necessary, and, and they were working on these kinds of plans. But, but basically, both the, the communists in exile and social democrats in exile, they also had something to do with perpetuating this myth and many of the survivors I talked to and the, of the interviews and memoirs that I read said, yeah, we believed it. You know, we believed that, that Austria was a victim and that they could go back and rejoin their fellow countrymen. Of course, that this was, these were really idealistic notions and they were <laughs> used of these almost immediately upon their arrival home. But nonetheless... So how do individual non-Jewish Viennese or non-Jewish Austrians, how do they view the prospect of the return of Jewish refugees uh, in, 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 in the early post-war years? Well, ultimately, at first, they didn't really expect, despite what these political parties mm-hmm. were saying, they didn't expect mm-hmm. them to come back. And... What the returnees found, of course, was a city that had been something like 25% damaged by Allied bombings. There were mm-hmm. housing shortages. There were food shortages in Vienna. So on sort of an immediate level, returnees were seen as competition for these kinds of things. Those who were in possession of Austrian Jews' property and businesses 
homes, things like that, that they had gained through Nazi Aryanization policies and laws. They feared Jews' return and demands to have their rightful property returned. And, um, and on a day-to-day level, what returnees experienced was reactions like uh, from their reactions from their non-Jewish friends and neighbors, like, oh, you're so lucky you weren't here. The Allied mm-hmm. bombings were so horrible. Or um, questions like, why did you come back? It must have been so much better wherever you were. Um, one woman told me that when she went to her former home, a neighbor said, what? You're still alive? <laughs> quickly reverted to, oh my gosh, but you know, you're so lucky you weren't here and huh. you know, poor us. And so there were, um, there was a lot of that kind of, that kind of reaction. Do what, what's the intersection of those two questions? Do, do ordinary Viennese quickly accept and internalize the narrative of victimhood or does this take a while? No, it, I mean, it, it came from the top down, but it went down pretty quickly. And yes, I think throughout it was accepted and it was, it became, it became the national narrative, mm-hmm. not just what the state, the leaders were projecting internationally, but also among citizens. And one one of the ways that they reacted, both um, Gentile Austrians and these Viennese Jews who returned, was to sort of adopt a kind of don't ask, don't tell policy. Mm-hmm. And to live together um, just without asking or without telling about what they did mm-hmm. during the war. And, you know, if you don't ask and you don't tell, then you don't have to know. Mm-hmm. And one can sort of go about life without having to think about that. I think um, one of the most striking interviews I read was about a woman who had survived the war in Italy and had come back and sort of regained her social circle and um, her home and just sort of clicked right back into to her friend circle and lived for decades quite well without ever talking to her friends and neighbors about the war and what had happened. And in this interview, when the interviewer asked her, what was the most difficult Part of return, what was the most difficult thing for you? She said, well, it was the Waldheim affair. Mm. And, you know, this was a time in the 80s when Waldheim was running for president of Austria and his past as a Waffen-SS officer was exposed and it unleashed public anti-Semitism and virulent anti-Semitism that they weren't used to because people had kept this sort of silence this whole time. And, um, you know, one of the survivors told me that anti-Semitism was there, but it was subterranean. He didn't have to see it, but he knew it was there. Mm-hmm. And at the Waldheim time, it became really obvious and felt very thoroughly. And what was so striking about this woman's testimony was that she when they asked what was the most difficult part about returning home, 
she was lamenting that the Waldheim affair ever happened because had it not happened, mm. her comfortable life, she wouldn't have had to cut ties with her friends and she could have just kept living on in, um, you know, willing ignorance, I guess. Mm. So, so then let's, yeah, let's turn to the returner experience then. And, and you lay out in your book, a, a series of waves of, of return, four of them in particular. Can, can you say a little bit about each of those waves and, and what distinguished them? Sure. So when I first started the research, I was thinking in terms of camp returnees and those coming back from abroad. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so <laughs> I, as, as soon as I started doing the research, I realized that something like 5,600 people had survived in the city. Hmm. So I had to sort of recalibrate my idea of returnee mm-hmm. to include these people who were, who were there and who sort of, you know, reemerged into society immediately with the Soviet conquest of Vienna. And so the very first returnees were those who survived in the city in hiding, the members of the Jewish community, um, employees of the Jewish community and some of their relatives. There was a Jewish community in Vienna through the whole war, um, a formal system operating for those who were still there. So people that survived in hiding, they survived with relation to the um, Eltisenrat or the Jewish community. Also, they survived in mixed marriages and the children of mixed marriages. So these people... Mm -hmm immediately sort of returned to life, returned to society from which they'd been thrust, immediately looking for family in the city and taking care of basic needs. And so I sort of, I think of them in terms of return to a family home because it was instinctive and immediate. They were soon joined within weeks by camp survivors who returned to Vienna by any means possible. Some of them walked over mountains and hitchhiked and some took bicycles and got on trains. They were also looking for family or going back to the last place that they had family or been with family. And so I refer to these first two groups as returning for a family home. The next wave to come were those who came from abroad, who had been abroad for political reasons. Um, Well, no, they, 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 they fled, of course, because they were Jewish, but they were abroad with their political parties mm-hmm. and returned for, for political reasons as social Democrats and communists with their parties. As I said before, they, their parties were telling them they had to come back and reclaim their Austria and rebuild this autonomous democratic Austria. So they were coming back for a political home. And the next wave following them um, came for reasons of professional life for a professional home. These are people who maybe for reasons of language, like um, writers and journalists, or because of their training, doctors and lawyers who were trained specifically as Austrian or Viennese, Viennese lawyers or who were certified as doctors in Austria couldn't gain a foothold abroad. These people didn't feel that they could work or live at the level that they were accustomed to, weighed their options and decided they would rather go back and perhaps live next door to a former Nazi 
Um, mm -hmm. They'd rather do that than to live and work at a, a lower level. And when they did, then, you know, as I said before about this, this woman and many others, they, they could. There was a way to come back and start again. And it just entailed not really talking about what had happened. Um, you talked about some of the physical challenges um, that they faced, the, the destruction. I, I have to say, I, I uh, was given, uh, my, my academic sponsor when I was in Austria was uh, a leader in the uh, Army Historical Museum there in Vienna, and he gave me a tour of a special exhibit in, uh, about Vienna in 1944 because it was the 50th year anniversary. And, and we went past a number of exhibit, uh, parts of that exhibit, which was dedicated to that destruction from the air. And, and I thought as I walked through that exhibit that, that about my grandfather, who had been a co-pilot in a B-17 and had probably been one of the people flying over Vienna at that time. I decided not to mention that. But, um, but what, what other kinds of challenges do these returnees face beyond simply the practical needing to find an intact apartment or something like that? Well, um, some of them, a lot of the, the returnees who came back with their political parties, many of them had actually gone to the UK. I really focus on the UK mm -hmm. in my research. Mm -hmm. Many of them had actually gone as children with the kinder transport, these mm. train school of, of German Austrian and some Czech Jewish kids that were taken to the UK and put with foster families or in, with organizations that cared for them. Many of them had gotten involved with, um, with the Austrian center and mm -hmm. its youth group, the young Austria and had, you know, gone there for reasons of, of culture and wanting to, uh, read German newspapers, maybe, or take part in a theater group or something like that, but, but ended up becoming indoctrinated into the Austrian Communist Party. <laughs> and um, the organizations had, had been really a cover for that. And the one, one story that one of the survivors, she actually had not gone with the kinder transport, although many of them had, she was a little tiny bit older and she'd gone as a domestic, so she was a bit older. Um, she told a story about the Young Austria Youth Group going around London, collecting German language books from mm -hmm. German and Austrian Jews who were there living in exile. And their idea was they had to go back to Austria and they had to work towards re-education and replenish libraries that, you know, had replenished all the banned books that had been taken away and to work towards this sort of like fighting the... Um, seven years of Nazi ideology in the education system. And they, they collected all these books. She said many more than just one door was slammed in their faces, of course. Mm -hmm. But they collected all these books. They packaged them up. They sent them back to Vienna. And when they got there, um, months later, when the war was over and she and her, her colleagues got back, on the very first night back, they were staying at the Communist Party headquarters and they stumbled upon this book, this pile of books that they had sent back. And um, it was moldy and wet and dirty and filthy. And 
she described it as this sort of figurative representation of, you know, all of their, these, again, these idealistic notions relegated to this figurative garbage heap. And, um, but she was also realistic about it. And she said, you know, this city was destroyed and there was nothing to eat and people didn't have places to live. And who's really worrying about education at this point in time? Mm-hmm. And so it, it goes more of the same of what we were saying before, I guess, that um, when they realized what the real concerns and the real worries were in, in Vienna, it didn't align with what they had expected. Um, but others, others encountered other ways that their lives didn't quite sync up quite yet mm-hmm. when we returned. One, um, also one of these, these guys who'd gone as a, as a kid to the UK and gotten involved with Young Austria, who comes back and wants to go to the university. And he'd done his A-levels in the UK. But when he tried to enroll at the Austrian university, they wouldn't accept him because they didn't accept his diploma. Hmm. They said, you know, in order to go to the university, you have to have a an Austrian high school diploma, and they wouldn't nostrify this British diploma to the Austrian because he was a boy, and boys had to study Latin, and you had to have Latin to go to the university oh. if you were a, a, a guy. And so he got creative, and he went to the women's gymnasium in Vienna. Women were not required to study Latin in Vienna, and he had his... His, his British diploma nostrified and received <laughs> a diploma from the women's gymnasium and went to university with that. And still to this day, that's what his, his high school or gymnasium huh. certificate reads. So there were all these weird little things, so many of them bureaucratic, mm-hmm. and also with no consideration for what these people had been through in order to just get their high school diploma. Um, these were kinds of hurdles that they had to overcome, too. You, you write in the book about the way in which the uh, Jewish community organization worked with Jews, advocated for Jewish returnees, and, and served as a source of community and fellowship. So can you talk a little bit about this organization and the kinds of things it does and, and how successful it was? Sure. So the Israelitische Kultusgemeinde, the Jewish community of Vienna, um, and then later once sort of transformed under the Nazis, the Ältestenrat, mm. operated in Vienna really throughout the entire war. Um, so they were there and in place to sort of resume care for their members immediately once the Russians had arrived and um, conquered the city. Mainly the immediate needs of food and healthcare, just like all around, were um, were of priority and, and most concern. The pre-1938 tasks of the Jewish community had been namely religious affairs and charitable activities, mm-hmm. but post-war, you know, there's no Jewish cultural or communal life. There's no religious education. And the new post-war tasks were particular to the needs of returnees. They developed the welfare department at this time so they could support their members with, with money and, and clothing and furniture Hospital continued to operate. They, a nursing home housed a number of residents. They, there was a children's home at the pediatric hospital, library, soup kitchen, workshops. Different organizations just started to open up the um, Hakoa, the Jewish 
athletic association reestablished itself and started to serve the needs of the community. One source of tension, though, of course, was that many people who were persecuted in Jews who were as Jews who were in post-war Vienna hadn't been pre-war members of the Jewish community. And so they didn't fall into their mandate. They, their resources were scant and they didn't have enough for their, their own members. And so intermarried couples, those of mixed ancestry were kind of left to fend for themselves. They're, they didn't have enough resources to support non-members. And then as international Jewish organizations came into the city, they helped more, but, but still um, it was hard when it came to people who had not identified as Jews or been members of the Jewish community. So much of your discussion is based around these, these waves and that's how the book is organized. But, but running through that is the issue of gender. So I wonder if you can talk about gender uh, and, and how you, encounter gender in your interviews and in, and in your analysis? That was, was very interesting. I mean, first of all, um, as Marion Kaplan writes, mm-hmm. uh, under the Nazis, gender roles flipped. Uh, once they started rounding up Jewish men and sending them to concentration camps early on, women had to sort of take over, first of all, to support their families, and but also to get their husbands out of concentration camps. Often they were released or only released if they promised to get out as soon as possible. So then the women were were organizing the emigration of entire families and, and at least their husbands, of course. And so very, very quickly women took on these new roles. And then once abroad, many women experienced different or new opportunities to work. And some established new careers, some studied, some, some made, made really, really nice starts to careers abroad. But at the end of the war, when many of their husbands considered political or professional reasons that they wanted to return, most of these women had to go along because it was the 1940s. And if their husbands wanted to go back, then they had to go back. And so I talked to many women and you can also read it in many of the, the interviews collected and in memoir who still to this day said, well, I never wanted to, I never wanted to come back. I mean, I'm, my kids are here. My grandchildren are here. Um, where am I going to go? And, and also just sort of acknowledging that it, it wasn't the time when women would stand up and say, well, you can go back, but I'm not going. They, they went back. And, I, and I, I think about this, too, in terms of these concepts of home, as I'm thinking about political home and professional home mm-hmm. and family home. In a sense, their home was returning to Vienna. And if they wanted to be with their home, they had to also go to Vienna. So mm-hmm. not their choice in many cases. And um, it was really, really common to have those conversations. And I hadn't even thought about it until something you said in that answer, but is there a generational element to this? Is there a difference in the experience of returners who who left as young children or, or, or somewhat young children? Or, or or is there a difference between people who grew up under the Habsburg Empire as opposed to Austria? Does age matter at all? Yeah. 
Um, I think that, I mean, age, of course it matters most specifically for people who fled in 1938, 1939, and who were in their mid-20s to mid-30s. They, mm -hmm. they go to a new place, and whether they, they loved the new job they had or the new work that they were doing or not, many people, they created new homes. They established new homes in these new places and probably had kids by the end of it, and they weren't going to leave. So, you know, we really are talking about a handful of people when we think mm -hmm. about 201,000 possible people to start with and 130 some thousand who emigrated just a few thousand actually came back and i think a lot of that had to do with the fact that so many of them left at a time when one really starts to establish a career and a family so fortunately for me so many of these um these kinder transport kids had gotten involved and with their political parties and had come back with them. And I say fortunate for me because they're, they're still alive. Mm. Um, when I was doing the research, now unfortunately we're losing more and more of them, but um, they had been children when they left Vienna. They, their parents had been worrying about what was going on and, and they didn't see or experience things firsthand. So I think that really had a lot to do with it too. If, you leave as a child and maybe are insulated from a lot of what's going on. I mean, that was, that, that was another um, factor, sorry, to go back to the gender. Um, women, and Marion uh, Kaplan also talks about this, women experienced the anti-Semitism and the, the anger and the rage against Jews much more acutely than, and immediately than, than men did because after the Anschluss, the women still had to go to the grocery store and, and buy groceries from the non-Jewish grocer or interact in the community much more than men did who just went to their jobs and worked and in many cases worked with other Jewish men. And so women could feel the, the problem and the threat of anti-Semitism maybe even faster and understood the necessity to leave, but also... Um, they saw it. They saw it when men didn't. And that's another reason that they were, you know, um, didn't really want to come back. Hmm. Um, one of the biggest themes in your book is this idea of the, 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 the deeper historical experience of Vienna as a place of multiple identities, of compromises, um, that that experience uh, of people who had fled Vienna and returned informed their approach to living in Vienna after they came back. Um, can you say a little bit more about that? Um, hmm. I'm sorry. Can you say the first? Part? So yeah. So how does so so if in fact the experience of living in Jew it, uh, as a Jew in Vienna before the war was one of uh, living in a Vienna, which simultaneously welcomed, but also was anti-Semitic. Mm -hmm. How does the, the kind of complicated experience of living there before the war, of the kind of negotiating these tensions before the war, how does that shape their 
the, the returnees uh, attitudes to how they should approach their neighbors or their governments or, or their employers? How, how does that longer term experience shape their, their um, behavior once they return? Well, I think in, in making the decision to, to go back and, and weighing what one would be or what one anticipated they would be going back to, there was this idea, I, I would say, especially among these, the older ones, right, who had mm-hmm. professionally um, already started careers in, in the city and had interacted with, with adults and, and leaders that they had the confidence that they had been able to do it before, that they could do it again. Mm. And if, you know, also sort of in terms of, you know, you asked the question about did age matter, also mm. time of emigration might matter too. And if you were able to get out um, before being deported or having to go to a camp, yeah. and you knew what happened. They knew what happened, but they hadn't seen it or experienced it firsthand maybe making it easier to say, yeah, okay. You know, there was always anti-Semitism there. People always had this attitude, but we know how to, we know how to do this. We know how to live there. And it, it carried them back. And then like we were talking about before, they, they're met with this sort of unspoken pact of, of silence and it's, it's able to, to work that way. It's one of the ways they can continue to maneuver in the city. Yeah, Vienna really plays, Vienna's a character in your book, in some sense, uh, at least as I read it. Uh, and you talk about how people come back to Vienna rather than to Austria. Um, so so first, I guess, um, it's clear that most Jews come back to Vienna. Most Jews who come back, come back to Vienna. There must have been a few who went somewhere else in Vienna, in, in Austria, whether in a mid-sized city like Salzburg or Graz or maybe to rural Austria. Do we know any, first of all, am I right? Are there some? Uh, and then secondly, if there are, do we know anything about them and their experience? There are some. Um, there weren't a whole lot to begin with. Uh, let's take the case of Graz. In 1938, there were about 1,600 Jews there. Mm-hmm. A little more than about 400 of them emigrated and most of the rest were sent to Vienna and then unfortunately later deported to the east. Um, after the war, there were about 110 Jews in Graz. Huh. The number rose by 49 to 420 and dropped by 1950 to 286. And today it's, it's got fewer than, than 100 formal members. Huh. There, there's a new synagogue consecrated evidently in, um, I haven't seen it yet myself, uh, in 2000, on the, the site of synagogue destroyed in the November program. And then the case of Salzburg is even a smaller community. In Just before the Anschluss, there were just under 300 Jews in the both the city and the province of Salzburg. Um, but after the war, Salzburg was a center for many displaced persons, many of the Jewish mm-hmm. refugees um, something like 20,000 of them were residing in and around Salzburg after the war. It was also, Salzburg was also a stop on the way to Italy for Jews who were trying to go to Palestine illegally with the Bricha movement. Um, but in any case, 
once they had all gone where they were going, the Jewish community there ended up being about 100 members. Hmm. Current, you know, 20 years ago in 2000, there were approximately 60 members of the Jewish community. One thing that was that's kind of interesting about um, the Salzburg Jewish community, the, the president, the leader of the Salzburg Jewish, this tiny little Jewish community was up until very recently, a man named Marco Feingold. And um, Mr. Feingold is an Auschwitz, was an Auschwitz survivor. And he took over the leadership of the Salzburg Jewish community in 1946 and remained the leader until the president until his death at, oh. the, age, at the age of 106. Oh my. When he passed away, his wife took over. So it's a very tiny little community. And, and obviously um, the Feingolds are, are working really, have been, have been running it for a long oh, time. Huh. Yeah. So what is it, for those who go back to Vienna, what is it about Vienna that, and, and you say in your book, at least to some extent, they think of themselves as, as much or more as Viennese rather than Austria. What is it about Vienna that, that's so magnetic or so important? Well, um, yeah, Mani Bunzel is a sociologist who has said that essentially Vienna can remain music and art and culture and opera mm -hmm. and Austria is Holocaust and Hitler um, mm -hmm. and the, you know, more current day right-wing government. Mm -hmm. And so in a sense, the reference to Austrian, quote unquote, Austrian would refer to non-Jewish Austrians, but Viennese is just incorporates all. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the survivors that I met would say, I love Vienna. I just don't like the Austrians. <laughs> <laughs> even a version of that like I love Vienna but the Viennese I could do without which is another way of saying that but um, there was definitely there is definitely a consideration of the city as really unique and I, I found like they were speaking almost of a family member they spoke of the city as a person almost and um, the kind of love for that you have for a family member. You know, if I might complain about my brother, but you can't complain about my brother. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, definitely they, I found that attitude among them in almost every interview. Huh. So did the returnees think about that experience often? Are they, has that changed over time? I know you, 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 uh, you mentioned the eighties. Um, but this is 30 years on, is this an important part of their experience now? Or, or did your presence and your questions prompt them to return to things they hadn't thought about in a very long time? Well, there is an organization in Vienna called Centropa that runs a monthly meeting of survivors, gets them together just for discussions and guest speakers and things hmm. like that. Um, and so there are there are still a number enough to get together for a monthly luncheon, and um, some of them do speak in schools or in community organizations. Some speak at, um, especially on the so-called Kristallnacht, the November program, that they'll speak about their experiences 
unfortunately, we're losing a lot of them. They're fewer and fewer. But there, you know, there's a lot of attention to the Nazi times in television. You can see a lot of films and documentaries all the time in Pofiel still and, and other publications are often coming out with the journalists and, and scholars continue to be very, um, to continue to confront the history and to discuss, take responsibility for the history. And um, what I have really, what I have really seen also maybe in the absence of survivors, it's not the same thing that we imagine in the United States where we have so many survivors who, especially at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, we send them out around the country and they're speaking all the time. It was, it was not something until recently survivors started doing more publicly or in classrooms, but, but there are some that do it. It's not something that they talk about necessarily day-to-day life. They still don't, nobody's hiding, but there's still a level of, of discretion. I think about that those times. Um, but, but I have to also say there are some, even as the state hasn't been so great over the last decades, there have, there are improvements, but there are also some really wonderful grassroots commemoration activities. And um, there's a Stolperstein type project called mm. Steine der Erinnerung. And they, um, I get emails from them all the time. They're dedicating new stones to commemorate victims Hmm. all the time they're having dedication ceremonies and i i go to vienna i don't know three or four times a year and every time i go there are more of these stones not a lot of them are they sometimes are placed by family members but also sometimes placed by community members or um schools there's interest they're really interesting grassroots community projects where people get together and they research sometimes it's school or um, sometimes it's a community organization. They research the history of their street. There's a, a street in the ninth district called Servitengasse, where the mm. residents got together and they researched all of the residents who were there mm. in 1938, traced all of their fates, and wrote a book, put together a book, and created a really, I think it's a really moving and um, wonderful memorial on their street there that um, all just came out of a couple of people on the street forming a Verein, you know, a, an association to, to do the history there. So there are some really great individuals doing work to fill the gaps as we lose survivors. But, um, but there, you know, there are a few people that would speak in schools, but it's just not this, it's not as prevalent as it might be here in the United States. Hmm. So it's a wonderful book, uh, and and we've only been able to kind of skim the surface of it. And I encourage the listeners to go out and and get it and read it. Um, there's lots more to it than we've been able to talk about. But but Betsy, our time is growing short. I always end with the same couple questions. So the first is simple. It is summertime, and in theory, if you abandon the fact that my primary job is a taxi driver for my children, I'm supposed to be having time where I can read something different. So hopefully that's true for the audience as well. Uh, so maybe you could recommend a book or a movie or a documentary. What what is something you would recommend to the audience that 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 was important to you in the process of doing this research and writing this book? 
Well, I was thinking about this question because I know that you ask it. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe the, the book that I would recommend is something I've read recently that is helping inform a bit about my next project. Um, I would highly recommend Anna Haikova's new book, The Last Ghetto, about Tracy. Hmm. Um, it's really an excellent study of the society there, different than the usual focus on, you know, the, the arts and cultural life in the, in Theresienstadt that was so unusual. That's what often the focus of yeah. studies would be, but rather she's showing a continuity from pre-war European communities and the diverse groups of European Jews imprisoned there, how that shaped the society in Theresienstadt. Really very interesting and, and, um, well-written book. So I would recommend that for sure. And then clearly you've got another project. Care to say more about what that is? Yeah, I, I'm, um, I'm an intriguing new project, at least to me. Um, <laughs> definitely um, through the research done for this book, I, I have become really fascinated um, with the elderly and mm. elderly victims and elderly survivors. And so you know, no one's really taking much look at the elderly, meaning the elderly in 1945, 46, of course. Mm -hmm. And um, so building on some of the interesting things I found in the previous research, I want to I wanna dig more into work on the elderly. And um, yeah, stay tuned. Book to come, I hope. I was going to say that sounds like a fascinating book. Uh, I hope when it's done. Um... <laughs> And, and no pressure. Uh, I know how that can sound, but when it's done, I hope that you'll join us again on New Books and Genocide Studies. But for now, we've been talking to uh, Elizabeth Anthony uh, about her book, The Compromise of Return, Viennese Jews After the Holocaust, uh, published by Wayne State University Press in association with the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. Betsy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's been lovely talking with you. Thank you.